Marsha and I were talking to our son Paul about the holidays, trying to find a way to coordinate to be able to see one another. You know that he still lives in Temple, Texas, but not for that much longer. About another 18 months or so, and he will finally graduate his fellowship in vascular surgery, and then he'll be coming back home to Oklahoma City. And we can hardly wait to have he and Krista and the grandkids back here in Oklahoma City. It's been such a long haul to be able to get there. And as we were talking, I couldn't help but be thinking back about when he was graduating high school here in Oklahoma City, and then he headed off to Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. He had been given an opportunity to play baseball there at the school, and he wanted to be pre-med, and so he headed off to Baltimore, and it was a great time, and we got involved in the Hopkins community and enjoyed going there. There's a magazine they'd send out to families of the students there, and I I remember a magazine we got with a story that has always stuck with me. It was written by a man named Gary St. Peter's. He and his wife, Jan, were about to make a contribution to create a scholarship there for Hopkins. And he told a story. He talked about how he grew up as a young man there on the East Coast. He grew up in a family that was incredibly loving, kind. They were there to support him and encourage him but they also were very poor. They did not have many means. And when he graduated high school, he was determined he was going to go to college. He wanted to go to a great college, and he applied to Hopkins. And he got a letter back that said, we're not saying yes, we're not saying no, you're on a wait list, which basically meant if enough other students turned down their opportunity, we might call you. Well, he waited and waited. It got to being September. September 1968, he had not heard from him. School was about to start. So he packed a bag, got on a train, and went to Baltimore. He went to the Lord Baltimore Hotel, 18 years old, his suitcase, and went up and said, I'd like to get a room. And they said, do you have a reservation? He said, can you do that? He was not very worldly, had not traveled, And the front desk manager said, son, this is Labor Day weekend. There are no hotel rooms anywhere. He was shocked. But the front desk manager looked at him and and he decided to really be kind. And he said, son, I'm not going to put you on the streets in Baltimore with your suitcase. 1968, alone on the streets. We got a cot back here in the back room with a night bell, man. You can spend the night on the cot. And so he spent the night there in the Lord Biltmore, Baltimore Hotel. He got up the next morning and there he went on to the, to the university. He was going to see Dean Logan, the dean of admissions. Again, he had not made a reservation. He had not made an appointment. He just showed up and said, can I see the dean? Well, they were a little taken back, but they finally said, all right. He came in to see Dean Logan, and he said, I'm about to fall down at your feet and grab hold of your leg, and I will not let go until you admit me into the university. It's kind of a new approach to getting admitted. He said, I promise if you give me the opportunity, I will work hard and make good. Dean Logan was impressed with his tenacity, and he went and he pulled out his file, he looked at it, and he said, you're in. And so he went to school, and he did take opportunity, and he did work hard. And in the end, he graduated with honors, and then he went on to law school, and he did very well. 
He became a lawyer living there in Providence, Rhode Island. He was 51 years old when he was writing this article. And he said, you know, I really believe you need to learn and then earn and then return. They was asked, why are you doing this? And he said, I want to honor all the people who've been so kind to me in the past. I want to honor Dean Logan for being kind enough to let me in. I want to honor a front desk manager who gave me a cot in a hotel. And most of all, I want to honor my mother and my father who were so kind and so good to always encourage and support me. I want to honor those who've been kind in the past and I want to build a bridge of hope to the future so that others may follow after me and we get them help over their hard times. I love that. I want to honor those who've been kind to me in the past and to build a bridge of hope to the future so others may follow. This morning, I want to conclude this stewardship sermon series. It's fun to be nice. Because we've been saying for the last six weeks that as the disciples of Jesus Christ, you and I commit to be kind. We commit to find every way we can to share God's love and bring hope in the world. We do it because we want to build a bridge of hope to the future so that others may follow into a new life in Christ and a life of hope. We've made a commitment that we're going to use our time, we're going to use our talents, we're going to use our money in order to help change this world. I love this scripture we're looking at this morning because our scripture lesson this morning really is about how King David chooses to be kind, to help build a better world. You know, when you read the Bible, one of the the, the most popular people in the Bible, of course, is King David. We love the stories of David. We love his spirit. And you see his spirit in this story this morning. Remember the backstory. David, David had been the best friend of Jonathan, who was the son of King Saul. King Saul was the king of Israel. And David and Jonathan had grown up. They were young warriors. They were men who would fight. They they were good men. They loved the Lord. And then in a battle with the Philistines, Jonathan was killed. And Saul, king of Israel, was killed, as were many in his family. Now in those days, if you killed the king and you wanted to overthrow it, then you needed to make sure you wiped out all of his family. You didn't need anyone hanging around saying they had legitimate claim to the throne. And that's why Saul's family would be put to death. But there was a little boy named Mephibosheth. He was five years old. He was Jonathan's son. And when the maid heard that Jonathan had been killed, knowing she needed to flee, she grabbed this boy and started to run. She tripped, fell on him, and it broke his ankles. Now He would heal all right, but the legs would not heal properly and he would be crippled in his ability to walk for the rest of his life. Well, she took him into hiding. And the years went by as he began to grow up in hiding, in poverty, 
He would ultimately get married and have his own son. David would become king of Israel after Saul. And years later, with his kingdom now firmly established, he looked at his servants and said, Is there anyone in the house of Saul that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Now that was not the politically expedient thing to do. If you found anyone in Saul's household, they needed to be put to death. One of the servants came forward and said, Yes, there is. There is Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, and his son and family. And David said, Bring them. Now when Mephibosheth hears that David has found out about him and wants him brought to the temple, you can only imagine it scared him to death. He knows what happens to the king's family who's been deposed. And so it says he came in before, before David and falls down on his face. And then he hears a message he did not expect to hear. I'm going to restore to you all the land of your father Jonathan and your grandfather Saul. And you will have servants who work the land for you. And you will come and eat at the king's table. I will protect you and I will provide for you and your family for the sake of your father Jonathan. That's not what he expected to hear. It wasn't politically expedient. No, it's because David had the love of God in his heart that he chose to be kind. To choose to do the right thing and to be kind. When you think of political leaders doing that, you you can't help but think about Jimmy Carter. He's been in the news a lot lately. You know, regardless of what you think about Jimmy Carter's politics, he was our president from 1977 all the way up through 1980. You have to talk about what a great man he is. I mean, he's been so involved. When he retired from being president, he did not just kind of go away and take it easy. He stayed so involved in the world trying to bless life. It was back in August when they announced that Jimmy Carter had cancer in his liver and in his brain. He's been on some treatments. He's doing very well. Still feels fine. Has not slowed down. Just recently in October he turned 91. You may have seen in the news where just a week or two ago he went to Memphis, Tennessee to go work on a Habitat for Humanity house. You see that's something he has done for more than 30 years. And when he got ready to go work on his Habitat for Humanity house he said to the press this is not about a press photo op, just please let me work on the house. And so they stayed back. He strapped on his tool belt, got out a saw and his hammer. He went to work on that house. This is the 3,943rd house that he has worked on. 3,943 homes. Because he wants to build a bridge of hope to the future to be there for people to follow, to have a better life. He is an incredible man of faith and he believes it's his faith that calls him to be in the world and to be kind. You and I are completing our stewardship campaign today. And today we come and celebrate the commitment we as a family of faith have made. A commitment that we are going to be kind, to share God's love and bring hope in the world, that we are going to build bridges of hope to the future.
We're going to leave this world a better place than we found it because of what we do in the name of Christ. I looked at the scripture and I thought, why did David do it? Why do we do it? I want to leave you with just two thoughts. First of all, David blessed Mephibosheth because he wanted to honor the past. Is there anyone I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? That wasn't going to be easy. Because every time he now saw Mephibosheth sitting at his table, he would think about his friend who died so young. Every time he looked at him, he would think of the one he lost. And yet, he would also smile at how he was blessing his son and grandson and the house of Saul would go on. He wanted to honor the past. As you and I have gone through this special time of stewardship, I I can't help but think about our past. To think about those that we want to honor who've gone before us 126 years and how we want to give thanks for what has been done for us. And one of the things I've really enjoyed in this sermon series is how many of you have really gotten into it. You've been sending me all kinds of comments and you've been sending me stories, some stories I've been able to use in sermons. I I told you the story of Bennett Hanneman and Peach's Neat Feet, if you were here that Sunday. I told you about Mr. Rogers. I received another story in the mail from a member of our family of faith, and that was Katie Marie Carlaw. Katie Marie is in her mid-twenties. As I say, she's a part of our family of faith, and she told me a story about how when she was back when she was 16 years old, her closest friend was a, a young lady named Kara. She was 17. They were both in high school together. They took dance lessons together. They went to competitions together. They were best of friends. They worked in a dance studio together. And then one day, Kara got sick. She got a virus. And her mom said she's going to have to be home for a few days, and she was at home. But because she had a weak immune system, this virus got stronger and went to her brain. In the end, she would fully recuperate physically, but it began to wipe out most of her memory. I mean, she could still remember her mother, her father, brother, sister, a boyfriend, but she could not remember her grandparents. She couldn't remember any Christmas memories, nothing from Thanksgiving. She couldn't remember the national anthem or Bible stories she had learned. She didn't remember friends or dance steps. She was back to being healthy, but so much of her memory was gone. And so Kara's mom called Katie Marie and said, I'm going to bring her to to the dance studio. We want to see if she'll remember something here. But I need to warn you ahead of time. And so Katie Marie was up by the door and in came Kara and she walked right by her. Her mom stopped her and said, don't you remember your friend, Katie Marie? How are you doing? Stick out a hand? She didn't know her at all. They said, we're going to let her sit on the side today and She didn't tell the students what was going on. Each day she would come back and they started trying to do some dance. Now and then, Kara would remember a little bit of a dance step and said, is is this something we learned? Yes. But time went by, weeks went by, and it was obvious. The memory wasn't coming back. She did not know her best friend. And And Katie Marie said that was so 
hard to have your friend that you've loved and you've made these memories and now she no longer can remember you at all? And she said, I finally came to realize I was going to have to make a new friend. I was going to have to start over. I was going to have to make a friend again. And so when she came in that day and Kara was there, she threw her arms around her and gave her a big bear hug. And she stepped, Kara stepped back and said, what was that about? And she said, you are still Kara. I love you. You are still the essence of the person that I've known. And I'm going to be your friend. And she stuck with her. And Kara did come back in terms of being able to go through school. She did well. She's a go-getter. She's now married. She has three kids. But she does not remember anything before that time. The friendship has started since that time. But Katie Marie has been there for her because of the love in the past. You know what I'd like to suggest is that I've been suggesting this to every worship service we have had today. I want to suggest it to those who worship online, those on television. What if every one of us made a commitment in this next week that you were going to think of somebody you wanted to honor? Maybe a parent, a child, a friend, somebody you want to honor, and then you choose to go do a kind act. And before you do, you give God thanks for that person and you honor them by being kind. You don't have to tell the person you're doing the kind act for what you're doing. It may be a stranger. But this week, decide to do something kind and think of the person you want to honor from the past. I mean, it starts in the fact that you and I are grateful to God for His Son, Jesus Christ, who has given us grace. And if you then remember those who have blessed you and you go be kind, you live in a spirit of gratitude, it will change everything. And you and I help to change the world. Secondly, it seems to me that David was willing to be there for Mephibosheth because he wanted to build a bridge of hope to the future. This was the opportunity to bless Saul's grandson, to bless Jonathan's son, to be there to make sure that the line of Saul would continue on. It honored Jonathan in the past, but it blessed Mephibosheth and his son and his family for the future. And that's what you and I have been about as we've gone through this series, thinking about how are we going to bless life and go into the future. It's what this afternoon is about. When we go out to the land in Edmond, we remember 126 years ago, and we are grateful, but it's about going forward, finding new ways to share God's love and bring hope in the world. It's about building a bridge to the future so others can follow into a life of Christ. You and I do it. Do you remember the name Aaron Gruwell? Aaron Gruwell, it was a teacher out in L.A. We brought her to St. Luke's about 12 years ago. If you remember then, we brought her and a couple of her students, Maria and Manny. They were here on a Sunday morning. 
And then about two years after that, we brought her and about 20 of her students. They came and stayed in our homes. They were here in the church. They inspired us about an inner city ministry, working with kids who came from a challenged background. And it was right after that that we started Studio 222, our first after-school ministry. We now have three, but it was Aaron who helped to inspire us and say, you can change lives, you can change the world. And we have hundreds of kids now involved in an after-school ministry from challenging situations. Well, it was Aaron. She was a teacher back in 1995. She was a freshman teacher getting her first job, Wilson High School, there in Long Beach, California. It was in a bad neighborhood. So many drugs, gangs. The principal said, you're getting 150 students, freshmen. You just need to know none of them will graduate. By their junior year, they will either drop out, be pregnant, be in prison, or be dead. It's just the way it goes. Aaron started teaching. And she found there was such prejudice among these kids. They're they're gang wars with one another. And one day she just blew up in her classroom and said, we're not going to have this. This is what leads to the Holocaust. And she said she could tell a bunch of blank looks on their face. And so she finally said, how many of you know about the Holocaust? Not a hand went up. How many of you have been shot at? Almost every hand went up. She said she decided to throw the curriculum out the window and start over. One of the first things she did was she took them all to go see Schindler's List to learn about the Holocaust. Because she did, there was a lot of publicity and a lot of white people reacted very negative to these kids in a movie theater. Steven Spielberg heard about it and invited the kids to come meet him. And so they got to know Steven Spielberg. She soon decided they needed to study Anne Frank's diary. They read the book and studied it and found out that Meat Geese, who was the lady who hid Anne in her attic, was still alive, 84 years old. They managed to fly her to L.A. and she came to meet with the class and to talk about what does it mean to be brave in face of that kind of persecution. You can change. You can do different They began to have all these kinds of experiences. People stepped in and started to help. One of them was John II. John II had grown up in California, very poor. He started his own computer company, became a multimillionaire. He saw these kids needing help and he decided he would buy 35 computers and give them to Aaron for her classroom. This is 1995. That was quite a gift. 35 computers, and Aaron said, I want each of you to keep a diary to talk about your life and what's going on. What are we learning? How are we going to change? And these kids started doing this. Four years later, at the end of their time, Aaron published a book, Freedom Writer's Diary. These are 150 kids who learned how to change their life and the world around them through writing instead of drugs and guns. Well, the Freedom Writer's Diary book came out. It was very successful. And then you remember in 2007, her life and this story was made into a movie. Hilary Swank played the part of Aaron. And uh, Patrick Dempsey was in the show. It was a big success. 
Marsh and I had the privilege of going out. She invited us to, to come out and be there and to walk the red carpet and be there at the movie premiere and to meet Hilary Swank and to be able to meet Patrick Dempsey. And they were very nice. But the person I looked for that night was John too. That's who I wanted to meet. And I told him, you're a hero. You're amazing. You did so much to change these kids' lives. He was very gracious. No, no, no. I said, oh, yes. I think you're a hero. Well, you need to know it's been 20 years. This is the 20th year since they started. And it was just a, about a week or so ago, Aaron Gruwell was here in Oklahoma City. She was here to be giving a speech at a women's leadership conference. And she called Marcia and asked her to go as her guest and ask if we could meet for breakfast. And so we did. We had a good time visiting and she told us that PBS is making a documentary about the 20th anniversary of the Freedom Riders and where they've come from and what they're doing today. And I said, you know, we've got to have you come back. And so in 2016, we're already working on the date and Aaron and several of her students will be coming back to St. Luke's and we'll get to see the documentary and and get back and renew old friendships and celebrate helping to change the world. But it made me start thinking about John 2. In the Freedom Writer's Diary, one of the young men wrote the story of what John 2 did for his life. They'd been at one of these big banquets, like with meat geese. And he had sat at the table with John. John was always there to mentor. And this young man said he was so shocked that a millionaire would be so interested in him. And they had such a good time. And when the night was over, this young man went out and got in his car to drive home. And he saw John too coming out. And he rolled out his window and said, Can I give you a lift to your car? And then he thought, Oh my gosh, what did I just do? He looked at his car. It was a 1978 Oldsmobile. Big crack in the windshield. It used to have two bucket seats, but one had been stolen. I only had one bucket seat in the front and had a back seat. Used to have a radio in the dashboard. It too had been stolen. Now there's a big hole. He thought about this car and what he had just done. And John too walked up and said, thanks, that'd be great. He climbed in the back seat, stretched at his feet to where the seat used to have been. And he said, man, this is just like a limousine. He said, you know, I wish I'd have had a car like this when I was in high school. When I was in high school, I was so poor, all I ever had was a bicycle. You're so fortunate. John was being so kind. He drove him to where John told him to drive, and he said, I pulled up beside a big, shiny Mercedes. And John got out and said, thanks for the ride. By the way, have you ever wanted a job? This young man said, I'd always had wanted a job. Yes, I'd love a job. He said, come to my office Monday afternoon after school. I'll give you a job. I want to read you what this young man had to write. In my neighborhood, gang violence and drug trafficking play a big role. And kids have no one to look up to as a, an example of hope. Like most of the kids in my neighborhood, I had no one to look up to or emulate until I met John too. He has inspired me to become an entrepreneur and start my own computer company. I want to eradicate the violence that's going on in my neighborhood and give back to the community the way John too has given back to me. 
I want to become a role model that kids in my neighborhood look up to, the way I look up to John too. Besides donating computers, John too has given a couple of Freedom Riders jobs at his company with benefits and Christmas bonuses. Handouts are like putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. But John too does not give people handouts. He gives people hope. Not even in my wildest dreams did I think I would meet a millionaire, especially a millionaire that cared about my well-being. I thank God for sending him into my life. He has given so much to me. And because of his actions, I want to give to others. And hopefully someone will follow after me and the cycle of hope will continue. And hopefully someone will follow after me and the cycle of hope will continue. You and I continue the cycle of hope. Because as the disciples of Jesus Christ, we choose to be kind. To share God's love and bring hope in the world. We do it to honor the past. We do it to build a bridge of hope to the future. You and I are able to leave this world a better place than we found it. It's what we've committed to do as a family of faith. And as we do it along the way, what we discover is it really is fun to be nice. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.